So, you just heard 12 days of Christmas, right? I want you to focus in on the number seven this morning. Seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes an I am statement. And what that means is seven times through the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am dot, 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 fill in the blank. And what he fills in the blank with is some kind of metaphor. I am a vine. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You get the idea. Seven times, Jesus makes an I am statement, uses a metaphor to help us understand who he is, to help us understand what he's about. Seven times, Jesus uses an I am statement. Seven times, he gives a window into his identity. Seven windows into his purpose, and seven invitations to the life that is found in his name. John weaves these throughout his story. Now, you've met two of them already, at least if you've been with us this fall at Fellowship of Faith. uh, Jesus began by saying, I am the bread of life, and he said it at a Jewish feast called Passover. These past couple of weeks, we've seen that Jesus said, I am the light of the world, that he said at a Jewish feast called Tabernacles. We've met two already, but today we're going to get two more, where Jesus says, I am the gate and I am the good shepherd. And both of these, he connects to the feast of Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah, by the way. Today is actually the first day of Hanukkah, sundown at least, which is only like two hours away. So, (laughs) and just like we've seen where Jesus is saying things in relation to these great expressions of faith of the old. So in these statements, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, we are gonna see the same thing in relation to this holiday called Hanukkah, because here's some news for you. Jesus never celebrated Christmas. But it's arguable that every year of his life, Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. It's an amazing theological holiday. It's amazingly rich with the movement and and purpose and plans of history of God's people. And, and, And a lot like Christmas, Hanukkah is not about the things that people often reduce it to. I love the one like guy over here who is singing dreidel, 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 you know, right? And for so many people, Hanukkah is about, well, you light menorahs and you, you play the dreidel game and you eat fried food and you exchange gifts. Well, that's like saying Christmas is about hanging stockings and sitting on Santa Claus's lap and exchanging gifts and lighting trees. These might be wonderful traditions. These might be wonderful even expressions of faith, but they have nothing really to do directly with what the holiday is about. So I'd like to describe to you a little bit today what Hanukkah is really about from a biblical point of view. Now you can read this on your own in two amazing books that you'll find in the Old Testament Apocrypha called First Maccabees and Second Maccabees. But go with me now, back to the second century AD. We're talking about 167 years before Jesus was born. And it was a strange time for the people of God. 
The people of God have experienced a long history of living under the impression and tyranny of some kind of foreign king or ruler. The story of the people of Israel is birthed out of oppression and slavery in Egypt, but that only began their narrative. Because if you read through the Old Testament, you will see that one superpower replaces another superpower, replaces another superpower, all with the same spirit of Control, oppression, imposition of will, financial gain, hunger for power, being reaped at Israel's expense. They moved from Egypt to the promised land and suffered before the people of Canaan. They, they, they suffered from the people, the Philistines and the people of Canaan, which shifted to Assyria. They shifted from Assyria to the people of Babylon. Babylon gave way to Persia. Persia gave way to Greece. Alexander the Great, you may have heard of him. And he dies after conquering the entire known world, which would include the people of Israel. And in 167 BC, we now have a new empire, a new king. The empire Empire is called the Seleucids. Give me a Seleucid here today. And the king of the Seleucids at 167 BC, uh, BC was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. Now pause. Antiochus's name should give you insight enough into this kind of king. If you're paying attention, maybe you've heard of the term epiphany before, certainly in church circles. We kind of know what it means to have an epiphany. There's a season of the church here, if you're liturgically oriented, actually called epiphany. And basically it means this, a manifestation of God. An epiphany, whether you use it metaphorically to have some great idea that you come up with, or you use it in a deeper, more transcendent theological way, is basically just to say there is a manifestation of God, like God is showing up. God is showing up and doing something tangibly, visibly, physically before my eyes. So the burning bush on Mount Sinai that Moses saw, that would be an epiphany. The plagues that God carried out against the people of Egypt, that would be an epiphany. And so many others of these examples that maybe you remember or think of, these are epiphanies of God. Well, it's safe to say that Antiochus's mom didn't name him Manifestation of God. No, it's worse, he named himself. Antiochus IV. But I will be known as the epiphany. I am God's gift, right? Right? To humanity. You've met people like this, haven't you? Now imagine when you give them a little power. And at the time of 167 BC, we have Antiochus IV, who calls himself Antiochus Epiphanes, but who got nicknamed derogatorily by the Jews Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus, not manifestation of God, but Antiochus the madman, because he was. And let me tell you a little bit about Antiochus and what he would do and what the people of God in 167 BC had to suffer through and how this leads to the feast of Hanukkah, which is the window to John chapter 10 and Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd and I am the gate. Antiochus Epiphanes was in love with all things Greek. Now, if you rewind maybe to a college or high school history, world history class, you might remember something called Hellenization. Hellene is just how you say Greek in Greek, 
So Greek doesn't say I'm Greek, they say I'm Hellene. So Hellenization is, is, is the Greekification of the entire world, bringing everything of Greek culture and wisdom and philosophy to the world under its control. And Antiochus was drunk on this. He knew the value of having a united language. He knew the value of having a united culture. He knew the value and the expediency of having a united religion. And so imposed by force, Greek thought, Greek culture, and Greek religion on all of his subjects. Now let me just ask you for a moment. How would you imagine that this went over with the Jews in 167 BC? To come into their temple and say it now needs to be a Greek temple to Zeus and we're gonna set up a, a, an image and a statue of Zeus that you will worship within it. How do you think it's set with your average second century BC Jew? To be told, to circumcise your child is to mutilate their body and there is nothing worse in Greek thought and culture than to mutilate the flesh. The body is beautiful in Greece. That's why they would do the, like, the Olympics naked. Praise be to God, it's no longer done that way today. <laughs> Gym class would be naked. Gym as we know it as a class actually comes from gymnasium, which was the center of sports and arena and culture and life in the Greek world. You can no longer circumcise your children. From a Jewish perspective, they can no longer be part of the covenant. He would force them to burn their sacred souls, the Bible, their, their sacred texts. Anyone found sacrificing to God, praying to Yahweh, following the old ways, the old traditions, the ways of Yahweh, would be punished up to death. Besides setting up a statue of Zeus in the temple at Jerusalem, they would defile the temple as well by sacrificing pig's blood on the altar. How do you think this went over with the Jews in second century BC? It's probably not what you think. It actually went over quite well. At least for some of them. Because in every time, in every age, in every space, in every belief system, there have always been those who don't really care and who don't really practice what they preach and who really aren't shaped by belief and in their core by the system that they claim to believe in and they go through the motions. And when you're a person who goes through the motions, you know what you do? What is expedient? This is the way they're going, we'll go with it too. This is how they want us to worship, we'll worship that way too. I got a little bit of pang of conscience, I can drive that down or wash that away. I can make this work, I can fit them together, I could shove them into the same place. Many of the Jews of second century BC, including many of its leaders, its pseudo-kings and governors, and more significantly, its priests, would simply accommodate But there's always a few in every place, in every time, in every age, in every belief system. There's always a few. The Bible will call them a remnant, but you get the idea. Who take God seriously? Who, to, who take what God says seriously? Who think this stuff actually matters? and not just in some kind of intellectual kind of way, but matters for life in practice. There's always some who are people of integrity. 
people who say, I won't bow the knee to that, I won't accommodate to that, I won't just go with that if it is counter to what I believe. And so go with me now to 167 BC. We have a madman who thinks he's the manifestation of God, Antiochus IV, ruling and imposing a religion and belief and way of life and practice and reality upon the Jewish people. And many of the priests realizing that their, their meal ticket depends on accommodating, that their future depends on accommodating, that their, their livelihood depends on accommodating. Go with the flow for personal or political expediency. But if you've ever been in moments like that or witnessed moments like that or, or experienced times like that or have been on the other side of the equation, you know the word that comes to mind for me is sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes of the heart that it creates, the longing, the yearning, the brokenness, the lament, over the state of affairs and the state of beings and that which was once beautiful in God's sight, which what it has become and his people have sold out to. Come with me to 167 BC and we meet an old, tired, haggard priest who laments in his home with his five sons, but who has not bowed his knee or offered the sacrifice to Zeus, who has not burned the scrolls, who has circumcised his children. And the nation state comes to his home in Modin. As a priest, the political expedient no. Make an example of the shepherd and the sheep will follow. They come to him and they start with bribes. Bribes, though, laced with threats. Simply lead your people in the way of Antiochus. Simply go through the motions. I don't care what you believe. Just do it and you will be called a friend of the king. But don't? Well, the detachment of soldiers right outside the door gives indication enough of what will happen if he shouldn't. And I love what Mattathias says, this old, tired, broken yet faithful priest. Even if the king should give me everything, I will not take the knee. I will not bow. I will not break my loyalty to Yahweh. Now, when things like this happen, there's often a certain sense of public spectacle. You know, you've all done it. Someone gets pulled over, you slow down to watch, right? Look, flashing lights. Look, detachment of soldiers. What is going on? There's another priest who's witnessing this. So fed up with disdain in his heart over Mattathias and his simple ways and his too good integrity, comes forward to make the sacrifice of swine on the altar to Zeus and something snaps. 
Something snaps in this old, haggard, tired priest. He picks up a weapon. Probably without even knowing what he's realizing, what he's doing, he charges into the fray and cuts that compromising priest down. His sons see it. They rally to him. They turn on the detachment of soldiers and what can only be described as like a brave heart kind of moment, the tide has suddenly shifted. And if you've seen that great movie of the 90s, once you get beyond the battle at Frey, you know that you have just opened inadvertently a greater war. And the rest of the story of the Maccabees is about these freedom fighters of faithful Jews who we'll call the Hasidim. This freedom fighter of, this this clan of freedom fighting faithful Jews, this Hasidim, waging guerrilla warfare against the empire, the Seleucids that might be, and for the first time since the time of Solomon, finding independence, freedom, and victory. It's a gripping story out of First and Second Maccabees. I encourage you to read it on your own. Any Bible app will have it. You've got to find it in the NRSV. Read it for yourself to get the whole story at play. But where this brings us is three years later, when much of the fighting has been done, to the final fateful moment when the enemy has been driven out And that temple in Jerusalem where God once dwelled, that temple in Jerusalem where people would faithfully gather to worship, that temple in Jerusalem where sacrifice could be made on our behalf and unto the Lord, where that temple in Jerusalem could be cleansed and purified and rededicated again. Now in the ancient Near East and in the Old Testament itself, there's a seven-day period of cleansing and rededicating a temple. And there's an an apocryphal story, if you will, that in the temple there is this this lamp stand that was to be ever lit at night as a presence that even when it is dark, God's light still shines and God is still among us. But they only had enough sacred oil for a single day. And after that day, it would take seven more days to consecrate the oil that was needed. So seven plus one equals, hey, you did better math than they did up here. Fantastic. (laughs) And how out of this simple single day of oil, God miraculously made it last for eight. Now, I don't know if that story actually happened. I don't know if it's true, but it's part of the tradition, and I will tell you this, I have seen God act like that up through today. How God could take small things, little things, and make them last and make them stretch and provide for his people like Jesus does with five loaves and two fish for thousands of people today. God is still in the miracle business. And with this rededication of the temple, they they decided to set this and commemorate this as a holiday, a day to remember, a day so that we do not forget that which we succumbed to, that which was pushed upon us, and the way that God delivered us through his Hasidim. And so to this day, on the feast of Hanukkah, they celebrated for for eight days, and each day lighting a new candle on that candelabra or Lamp, the first, will be lit today. 
It's a fascinating holiday, a rich holiday, one that Jesus would have celebrated. And we find him in John chapter 10, here in Jerusalem, now at what is called the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Hanukkah, however you wanted to put commemorating that day. Now, if you're listening critically and you're listening carefully, you might be picking up on something. That as much as this day centers itself around the rededication of a temple with that light that miraculously lasted, this feast or holiday is tied to something else as well. The corruption of God's people. Everything we're doing here is in response to the corruption of God's people. Or better put, everything that's happening here had to happen because of the corruption of God's unfaithful leaders and priests. Since the beginning, God has raised up leaders and priests, sometimes men and women of ability, and sometimes men and women of no ability, but putting upon them a yoke, a mantle, a responsibility, and a burden to lead and speak to his people. Some do it well. Some do not. We know this from all of human life, don't we? In every aspect of human life, be it politics, be it religion, be it education, be it the home, be it the the, the place of business or corporate America or a thousand other examples we can come up with, there are those who are placed in positions to lead. Some do it well. Some don't. Here we find in this festival of dedication, this festival of Hanukkah, a commentary on God's leaders who didn't do it well. The prophet Ezekiel, hundreds of years before this, spoke and prophesied about this kind of thing. Let me read to you from Ezekiel, chapter 34. The word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Now, are you translating? Do not in your mind think right now that we are talking about literal shepherds. Ezekiel is not getting a word of the Lord against like like dudes in robes hanging out in the mountains watching over sheep. It is a metaphor. Because just as a shepherd takes care of sheep, so God will appoint shepherds to take care of his sheep. Leaders and priests and those in positions of authority. The word of the Lord came to me. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourself with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. 
You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for wild animals. My sheep wandered all over the mountain and on every hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for the wild animals and because my shepherds did not search for my flock but cared for themselves rather than my flock, therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will, remove from, I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and I will look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock, When he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they have scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements of the land. I will tend them in good pasture and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing ground. There they will lie down in good grazing land and they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Imagine yourself in the second century BC witnessing the persecution and oppression of a foreign nation upon you. Imagine yourself in second century BC looking at your leaders who are supposed to lead you, who are doing anything but and accommodating and selling out to the powers that be. Imagine the cry of the heart that comes in the face of human ineptitude and in the presence of human corruption. You have all been there. You have all been there in one way or another. How long, oh Lord, do I gotta put up with this guy? How long will he be in power? How long will he get away with it? How long will she continue in? And God's saying, I see it too. Don't think I've turned a blind eye. I see it too. And the day will come when I will come and scatter those shepherds and shepherd the flock myself. If you can hear this and you can experience this and you can feel this, maybe you can start to sense some of the hum surrounding this feast called Hanukkah. Which brings us to John chapter 10. The difficulty with chapters in the Bible is 
It forces us to read in a very broken, truncated, piecemeal kind of way. But remember that when John would write his story, chapters weren't written in there. And so the narrative flow is always important even over the gaps in the spacing of the, the page and the editor's subtexts and prefaces. Chapter nine, we see Jesus healing a man born blind. And the shepherds of Israel, no, the Pharisees, the Hasidim, rise up against Jesus to condemn him binding the broken hearted and healing the injured. Hear how the story ends. Some Pharisees who were with Jesus heard him say these lines, for judgment I have come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say it, these Pharisees, these ones who are direct descendants of the Maccabean Hasidim. And they asked, what are we blind to? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you're, that now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. To which the story immediately takes us into these words of Jesus, I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. And John says, Jesus spoke this way in this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. So Jesus went on and he says, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. And at these words, it says the Jews were again divided as maybe we are today. Some of them said, he's demon-possessed, he's raving mad. Don't listen to him. But others said, 
These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And again, we see the classic narrative that where Jesus comes, it creates polarity. But did you hear the resonance? Did you see the connective tissue? Did you pick up on some of the illusions between what Jesus was saying and what Ezekiel prophesied so long ago? Here we are in the presence of Pharisees, men chosen by God to lead and shepherd God's people. Men who once claimed ancestry to a great line of faithful people of God of old, the Hasidim, people willing to lay down their life for the sake of the sheep, but now Pharisees, rejecting the very shepherd of God sent in their midst. Now Pharisees more concerned with the fine points of the law than human suffering. Now Pharisees looking to protect the nation state of Israel against Rome rather than honor God with integrity. Jesus says, if, if you were blind, there would be no judgment against you. But because you claim to see the things of God, God's judgment remains upon you. Do you hear what Jesus is doing? I am the gate, not they. I am the access point to God and his blessing. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? I am the good shepherd. These shepherds of Israel have failed you. And can we add shepherds of every other stripe and variety since? Whether the leader of a state or a church board marked by ineptitude or a PTA more concerned with their child than the greater good, we see it at every level. Shepherds concerned more with feeding their own stomach and getting their own way than for the sheep. And into that, into that place, into that time, into that story of remembrance, of God's hope, of a good shepherd, of God coming to shepherd his people himself, Jesus stands up and says, I am the good shepherd. Do you see what Jesus is saying? I am the good shepherd. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Can I use his words? Do you have ears? Do you hear? Can you perceive what he's saying between the lines tucked within these I am statements are incredible, incredible windows into Jesus' identity and to Jesus' purpose and life in his name. And the story, I think, begs a question, and it's a question that has been begged since the beginning. Whose voice are you listening to? Because a lot of people are telling you a lot of things. There are so many voices clamoring for your attention. Whose voice are you turning into? Whose voice are you basing your life on? Whose voice is the interpretive field of vision for the world around you today? That's your shepherd. And the question that John begs us to ask ourselves 
is which shepherd will I look to? Through which gate will I enter? Because they are not all the same. Every gate does not lead to the goodness and promise and blessing of God. Not every gate leads to the life Jesus talks about in his name. Not every gate enters into a field of understanding of how the world works. There are many bad shepherds around. The question of Hanukkah, the question Jesus springboards into is the question I will ask again. Which shepherd are you following? Who are you listening to? Because the answer to that question results in whether you will have the life Jesus talks about in his name. It's the message he proclaimed that Hanukkah day. It's a message I hope you take to heart today. So I want to invite you to rise. We're going to pray. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer, but I encourage you to not dismiss the question just because you stood up. It's not a punchline to a joke, but something that's meant to go with you. Just ask yourself in his presence. That's what time is, time conversing in God's presence, right? Lord, what shepherd have I been listening to? Whose voice am I tuning into? Ask yourself in prayer that question today. We'll bring it to a time of confession. A time that if you realize you're listening to false voices, wrong voices, or other voices more acutely than the voice of the good shepherd himself, to repent of it, to receive forgiveness and life in Jesus' name, we'll profess a faith we have in him and go in his blessing today. Let's pray.